0: amen last week we began a new sermon series it is a 66 week sermon series I have to say the longest one I've ever initiated Uh, but what we're doing is we're going through a different book of the Bible each Sunday Uh, this week we're in Genesis next week we're in Exodus so I encourage you to read Exodus for next Sunday just out of curiosity anybody read Genesis for this Sunday see a few hands all right very good Obviously, I can't say everything that there is to be said about Genesis uh, this morning. But uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to focus on the main point. What's the main point of this book? And and in particular, how does that main point relate to this bigger theme that we see throughout the Bible of God the King and His kingdom? And Genesis is really the beginning of the story of God's kingdom. So I'm going to ask you if you'd please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15, if you are able, I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to begin reading in verse 1, and this is the very inspired Word of God. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Father, I pray your blessings on our time together this morning in your word. Do your work among us by your spirit uh, for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, the word Genesis just simply means beginnings or origins. And so, the first part of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, is really the beginnings, the origins of of all things. And then, Genesis 12 through 50 is really the story of the beginnings or the origins of God's people, that is, particular people. And that's really what we're going to focus on this morning uh, Genesis 12 through 50. And, and and there's this emphasis throughout Genesis on blessing. God blesses. We see the word blessing 88 times. We also see an emphasis on God making promises and God making covenants. And, and today what I want to do is just point out several lessons that we learn about God's promises from the book of Genesis. So here's the first one. God's promises often come during great conflict. Now the main promise in Genesis... Is the promise that's made to Abraham that we see here in our passage in chapter 15? It is a promise that he's going to have a son, verse 4. It's a promise that he's going to have offspring, verse 5. It's a promise that he's going to have land, the given land, verse 7. And in verses 18 through 20, we're told that it's land that is currently being inhabited by others uh, during this time. So this is not the first time that God has made this promise to Abraham. We said last week, the first time that we see comes in Genesis 12, verses 1-3. through And we said that is a key passage we will just keep coming back to over and over and over throughout this sermon series. And and, and we know it's important for a number of reasons. One reason is just the number of times that God keeps making this promise to Abraham and renewing it over and over. I, I counted Eight different chapters in Genesis, and I might have missed some, but eight chapters in Genesis where God is speaking to Abraham and renewing this specific promise to him, and then even after Abraham dies, you see God renewing this exact promise, the specific promise, but he's making it to Abraham's descendants and, and then it doesn't it's not like it stops with the book of Genesis. it just keeps going throughout the whole Old Testament, letting us know. Okay, th- this is important. This is worth giving uh, a time and attention to. Uh, we, we also know it's important because of what we see here in verse 1 and verse 4 where it says, The word of the Lord came to Abraham. Well, Anytime you see that phrase, you don't see it a ton. When you see it, it's like, this is important. The word of the Lord came to Abraham saying what? Verse 1, fear not. Don't be afraid. And... And God comes to him because Abraham is doubting. Abraham has doubts. He's heard the promise in chapter 12, but he's having a hard time believing it. Why? Because he doesn't have any children. He doesn't have a son. He's getting a little old. And he said, I just just don't see this happening. I just can't see this. And so Abraham's struggling. He's doubting. He's doubting the promise that's been made to him. And God says, look at the stars. Can you count them? Could you begin to count the number of stars that you see? And of course the answer is no, they're countless, endless. And God says, so shall your descendants be. And it says in verse 6, very important verse, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him, counted it to him as righteousness. And that's such an important verse that the New Testament will reference it four times. And God says, I'm also going to give you the land. And Abraham says, but how can I know? It's like He trusts Him with the sons and the children. Okay, I believe, credit is righteousness. And I'm going to give you the land too. But how can I know? He still has doubt. Even with God speaking to him, right? Audibly, I presume. Speaking to him audibly, there's still some doubt. How can I know? Can you give me some assurance? And God does. And we'll talk about that here in a few moments. But I just want to point out, God is committing to do something incredible. Something great. He's entering in and making a promise, but He's doing it in the midst of, of great conflict. He's doing it in the midst of a fallen, broken world. And we know this because we've read Genesis 1-11. through 11. And we know it doesn't take very long for sin to enter into the world. And, and the world becomes broken. And, and, and that's one of the major themes. It's a, it's a fallen world. And we saw this back last week when we looked at chapter 3, verse 15. There's a great promise that's made to, to the, about the woman she's going to have a child and her son is going to crush the serpent's head. There's the wonderful promise of God. Amen. Good's going to win in the end. The enemy's going to be defeated. But you read about the promise and you also learn that the enemy's going to have some, some minor victories here and there. And he's going to bruise his heel. And we learn there's going to be great enmity, great conflict between the, the, the child of the woman and the child of the serpent. There's going to be this incredible conflict that really is the storyline of the rest of the Bible. The rest of Genesis, the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the Bible, at some level is the story of the enmity and the conflict and the tension and the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In Genesis 6, we have this very significant event of the flood. Why does God flood the world? Because it's become so evil. The seed of the serpent has overtaken so much and it's like God says, I'm going to start all again. And you have Noah, who's sort of a, a, the new Adam. And he starts all over, and he gives Noah the same commands. Be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth, have dominion. And it just doesn't take any time at all before the same, basically the same pattern occurs again. Evil comes up. And it's almost like, is God going to flood it again? You know, you got the Tower of Babel. And it says, God would be perfectly justified. And it would make complete sense if God just kept generation after generation just keep wiping it out. I'm starting again. You messed up. We'll start anew. Or it would make it would make sense if He just said, "I'm done. I gave you a number of tries, a number of turns. You just keep heading toward evil. I'm done with you." But that's not what happens. God comes in and makes a promise to Noah, and He says, "I'm, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to flood it again, even if it becomes progressively evil more and more, just as it does and it will." I'm not going to flood it again. Instead, I'm going to redeem it and I'm going to renew it. And I'm going to enter into it. I'm going to enter into the brokenness of it and the pain of it and the conflict of it. I'm going to enter in and I'm going to redeem it and restore my kingdom on the earth. And, and He does it in a very specific way. And He doesn't do it all at once. He doesn't just snap His fingers and it happens. He, he, he makes a specific promise to a specific person named Abraham about a specific land that He's going to give him, and He's going to give him this offspring. And, 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 and so God is going to do something great, and He's promising to do something great, but it's not going to be without great conflict. Every good story has good conflict. You show me a story you like, and I promise you there's conflict in it. One of my all-time favorite stories is the story of Peter Pan. And there's all kinds of great conflict in Peter Pan. Right? If you think about it, there's, there's good versus evil. Pan versus Hook. There's man versus creature, you know, where the the the, the uh, alligator is trying to, the crocodile is trying to go after Hook. And we actually cheer for the crocodile in that situation. You normally cheer against the animal. In this situation, you cheer for the animal, against Captain Hook. You've got conflict among people. You have a conflict between Tinkerbell and Wendy because uh, Tinkerbell is jealous of Wendy and the time that Peter Pan has been giving to her, right? So you got good conflict there. And then you've got the conflict within of a boy who doesn't want to grow up. He wants to live forever and never, never land. And here's the point. If the, Bible, if the story of the Bible is true, if it truly is the grand meta-narrative of all narratives as we believe it is, if it really is the story of all stories, then it makes sense. every story at some level that's good and that we resonate with, every story at some level sort of reflects the grand story. Because the grand story has all of it. It's got good versus evil, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. It's got man versus man. You see that with the first two sons who were born. One of them kills the other one, right? You got conflict right out of the gate, right from the very beginning. You got murder. You got conflict with the nature. You got the flood. You've got a famine that comes at the end of Genesis. And you've got conflict within. You know, I think about the Psalms. Why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? So the psalmist and, and many, all of God's people wrestle within. And, and, and our lives reflect this story. We, we are currently living in the Genesis 3 world. We are a part of the story. Our story is a part of this story. And therefore, our lives are marked by conflict. They're marked by the fallenness of this world and we're reminded of it daily. Our family was reminded of it this past week. Whitney had made a big pot of soup, and it was on the stove and ready to be eaten. And somehow, we don't really know how, there were these three glass bowls. They were kind of like measuring bowls, and they were up in the counter. And somehow they fell out and fell into the counter and smashed, and glass went everywhere. I mean, across the room. And we found out it actually went into the soup as well. And we kind of debated, do we just go for it and have faith that we'll be okay? You know? <laughs> But that's not how faith works, so don't do that. Don't test God in that way. Uh, so we had to clean the glass, which uh, I'm told took a long time. I happen to not be there, or I certainly would have been involved in the cleaning of the glass. Uh, the soup got ruined and had to be thrown out. I, I actually watched the throwing out of the soup. And then we had to make dinner still. Right? So think about it, the time it takes to clean all the glass, multiple rounds of cleaning the glass, by the way, and still getting cuts on our feet from little shards of glass here and there. Right, we got to throw out the soup, so we had the time that we wasted on making the soup, and then we had to make a new dinner, and then the new dinner we made was dinner that we were going to make a different night, and Whitney just, at the end of it, just said, it's a fallen world. That was the summary, that's the lesson, and I couldn't improve on it at all. It's, it's a fallen world, and you have your own stories you could tell. You could probably tell stories that happened today, already, that just illustrate the fact that it's a fallen world. Now here's the good news. God enters into the fallenness and makes great promises that He's going to redeem it and restore it, and it's wonderful. Uh, but it doesn't often happen immediately. It often happens over a long period of time. It's usually not on our timetable. And, and, and His redemption often involves us continuing to be in the midst of the conflict. And so we don't go after it. We're not looking for conflict, but you know, you just live in this world and it will find you soon enough. And, and, uh, the good news is the promise of God is there. The bad news is it usually comes in the midst of great conflict. Here's the second lesson I want you to see God will accomplish his promises. He will do this. See, we could easily become cynical. We could easily become people who say, you know, why spend the time making the soup when something crazy will probably happen, like a glass bowl falling out and getting glass all in the soup and it'll ruin it. Like, why, why live life when you just have glass bowls falling out of counters with no explanation, right? It, it would be easy just to get cynical. I would do that, but I'm not going to because something would probably just go wrong, right? Very easy to live in a cynical, but we're not, we're not cynical people. We're hopeful people. We're realistic people. We know there's a fallenness. But we're hopeful people because we know God has made His promise. And we're clinging to that. Now there are a number of passages I could have chosen to to talk about the promise made to Abraham because the promise made to Abraham is found throughout. So why did I choose Genesis 15? A big part of the reason is because of the story of this cutting the animals in half. And you say, well, that sounds kind of morbid. (laughs) Why would you emphasize that? Here's why. What's happening with the cutting of the animals is important. God is entering into a covenant with Abraham. And this is how they cut covenants. Actually, it's actually called cutting a covenant in this day, in this culture. Genesis fifteen eighteen tells us that's what this is. It's a covenant. And so when two people entered into a covenant, it was not uncommon for them as their way of saying, I will live up to my end of the promise and you live up to your end of the promise. They would take these animals, cut them in half, lay them apart from each other and form an aisle and walk through them. And what they're doing is they're acting out the covenant. They're acting out the promise. What they're saying by by doing that is they're saying, may I be killed? May I be treated like these animals? I will die before I live up to my end of this covenant. And if I don't live up to this covenant, by all means, consider me like these animals. In other words, dead. Right. Now, So you could have two people enter into a covenant together. You could have one person who's inferior. For example, think about an inferior king who's going to come and submit to a greater king, a superior king, and the inferior king is required to cut a covenant with the superior king saying, I pledge my allegiance to you, the superior king. And so when God calls Abraham and he says get these animals and cut them in two and get them in place, in all likelihood Abraham knows exactly what he's talking about. Oh, we're about to cut a covenant. And and so Abraham knows what to do. He knows what's going on. God's talking his language here. And and in all likelihood, I believe that Abraham's probably thinking that he's the one who's going to be told to walk through these cut animals. Why? Because he's he's the inferior. God is the superior. But, and if God were to require Abraham to do that, which wouldn't be you know uncommon, that wouldn't shock us, because if Abraham did it, what would he be saying? He's saying, may I die if I don't live up to my end of, of my obedience to you and my faithfulness to you? That would make total sense. But it wouldn't answer the question, how can Abraham be confident that God's going to do this? The covenant comes on the heels of Abraham asking the question, how can I know for certain that you, God, are going to do what you say. You say you're going to give me a son and offspring. You say you're going to give me this land. I've heard your voice, but I, I want some proof. How can I know? And in response, God gives him away. God shows him how he can know. And God enacts this covenant. And God acts out this covenant. Even though God's the superior who doesn't owe Abraham anything. He doesn't owe this promise to Abraham. But he says, I'll show you how you can know. I'll show you how you can be certain. And the Bible says that a deep sleep comes over Abraham and that a fire passes through these cut animals. Now why is that significant? A fire. Well, a fire in the Bible often represents God's unique presence. We're going to see that a lot as we go through. We're going to see it next week with the burning bush. It represents the, the presence of God. The special, unique presence of God. And so What's happening? God is passing through the animals. What's He saying by doing that? He's saying, Abraham, you asked me how you can know that I'm going to do what I've promised you. Here's how you can know. I covenant with you. In other words, I am vowing I will die before I will fail to live up to my end of this covenant with you. And that's why I'm making the point this morning. God will accomplish His promises. He will do what he says, he will do. One of the books that I used as a resource for my time going through this study is a book by Tom Schreiner called The King in His Beauty. It's a biblical theology of the Old and New Testaments. And Tom Schreiner summarizes the book of Genesis like this. I think it's very helpful. Genesis teaches that the kingdom of God will come for ultimately it depends upon the Lord. It will be realized through His promise rather than human virtue. The kingdom of God will be realized, but it will be realized according to his promise and not according to human virtue. I remember as a kid when we made promises with each other, it was kind of a big deal. And we had these ways of sort of expressing how serious we were about our promise and how serious we were about, you know, upholding our end of the promise. And one of the things we would say is we would say, crosses don't count. I promise you all do it, crosses don't count. And what that meant was, I think, I was trying to do the psychology of it this past week. Why would we say that? In theory, what we were saying is, if you said you promised to do something, you might hypothetically have your fingers crossed. And then that meant you didn't really have to do it. But if you said crosses don't count, that means even if I were hypothetically to be crossing my fingers right now, that doesn't count, so therefore you can trust me that when I promise you I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. Another another one that came to my mind this past week, it, I remember people used to say they would promise on somebody's grave. And I thought, that's just bizarre. So I tried to look up, what does that even mean? And I couldn't figure it out. So if somebody knows, you let me know after the service. It, you know, it's kind of morbid sounding, but I think it was just a way of trying to give great emphasis. Like, oh, wow, that sounds really serious. It must be, he must really be serious. He must really be promising this. And I asked my kids yesterday at lunch, I said, when you all make promises, and people tell you they're going to do things. What are kind of the common ways they, 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 they communicate that they really mean it? And my youngest daughter just, without hesitation, said, oh, that's easy, we, we make a pinky promise. You know, you just hold out your pinky, and if you do that, then that means you're really serious about what you're, you're really going to do. it. You can really trust me. Now Jesus, of course, said, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I would say, go with that, right, over the rest. But I want to make the point that, you know, we live in a world where sometimes we have a hard time believing people when they tell us they're going to do something. We live in a world where it's kind of hard to take somebody with just their handshake. And so we have the, in our day, we have these big legal documents, like pages and pages, and we get lawyers involved, and then we sign our name. And that's our way of saying, I'm going to do it. And if I don't do it, here's what I owe you. In this day, in Abraham's day, it was cutting animals in two and walking through and acting out the covenant. If I don't do it, if I don't meet up to my promise, you know, I, I'm dead. Consider me dead. I die. And the reality is, sometimes we make promises with people, even people who are solid people of integrity, and they just don't have the ability. Some people. That's the nature of the world we live in. We live in a world where sometimes glass dishes fall out of counters and you. <laughs> I would have told you 10 minutes ago that we're having soup, and now we're not. Because a glass bowl just fell out of the counter. You know, We just live in a world where sometimes the nature of the world and the nature of people sometimes just can't fulfill their end. But here's the point. That's not true of God. He always accomplishes His promises. He always does what He says He will do. In fact, I love this verse. Look at Genesis 18, verse 14. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? That comes right on the heels of Sarah laughing. Abraham's wife, Sarah, laughs when she's told, you're going to have a son. She says, yeah, right. We've tried. I'm barren. We're too old. This doesn't happen. Right? The experience tells me this doesn't happen. She laughs. That's funny. And God responds and says, is anything... Is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course the answer is no. Why why is that significant? Therefore, he will accomplish and fulfill his promises that he's made. And by the way, he does. We do see this promise made to Abraham fulfilled, and we'll see that in the weeks ahead. Third, I want you to notice this truth. God often uses people to accomplish his promises. I can imagine somebody saying, if God's going to do what He's going to do, and He makes a promise, you know, couldn't you imagine Abraham saying, hey, that was an unconditional promise. I don't have to do anything. I can just sit back and God's going to do what He said He's going to do. D- d- doesn't this sort of take the, the air out of the tires? Doesn't this remove our motivation? If God's going to do what He says and He promises, and there, therefore why do anything? And uh, I just want to point out from the text that we see, the answer is because God uses people to accomplish the promises that he makes. We see him using the obedience of Abraham, for example. In chapter 17, he's told to circumcise, to be circumcised and to circumcise others. And God says very clearly, if you don't, anyone who's not circumcised is not considered a part of my people. You don't receive the blessing. You don't receive the blessing and the promises made to Abraham. Chapter 17, verse 14. If you don't obey by carrying out the sign of the covenant, namely circumcision, you are cut off from the people of God. So obedience is required. We also see in chapter 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his one and only son. Abraham finally gets the son that he's been promised. He's been waiting for, I don't think it's going to happen. It finally happens, and God says, Okay, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac up and sacrifice him. What? You made this promise to me about the son, and we didn't believe you, and finally we believed you, and you gave him to us, and now you're telling me I'm supposed to go sacrifice him? And of course, Abraham passes the test. It's a test. Uh, he, He succeeds where Adam failed. Adam fails the test, Abraham passes the test. And the book of Hebrews tells us he passed it because he believed that God would raise him from the dead. I'm willing to sacrifice my one and only son because I'm trusting in God's promise that he's the son. He's the son of the blessing. And therefore, I guess God will just raise him from the grave. James tells us that Abraham's faith here is proven or justified by his obedience. We know his faith is authentic. How? Because he obeys. So the obedience of of the people is a significant part of God fulfilling his promise. Listen to Genesis 22.18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed My voice. There's a relationship between their obedience and God blessing them. Let me show you one other example. Genesis 26. This is God renewing the promise, but He's renewing it to Isaac. So it's the same promise He makes to Abraham. Same language, same detail, but He's making it to Abraham's son, Isaac. And listen to the emphasis on God saying, I'm going to do this because of Abraham's obedience. Genesis 26, 4 and 5, I will multiply your offspring, Isaac, as the stars of heaven. There's the imagery of the stars, the endless stars. I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So on one hand, we have this important principle. God makes a promise. He will keep it. It is unconditional. The promise made to Abraham is unconditional. I will do this. I will give you the land. I will give you offspring. And at the exact same time, the way that God accomplishes the promise is through the obedience of His people. And it's a great principle. It's an incredible principle. And the classic story that illustrates this principle, probably better, maybe better than any other story in the Bible, is the story of Joseph. And it happens to be in Genesis, so therefore I'm going to use Joseph as my illustration. Joseph, by the end of the book, ends up in Egypt. And therefore, God's people end up in Egypt. And that's very significant for several reasons. Number one, they're able to be spared the famine that occurs where they were. And if they hadn't been spared the famine, what would that mean? That's a threat to the promise. It's all about the promise. The promise is fulfilled by God's people ending up in Egypt. At the same time, Egypt is the place where they're going to be enslaved for hundreds of years. But it's the place where God's going to deliver them in a definitive way, and that act is going to be the definitive act of of salvation in the Old Testament. God bringing out His people from Egypt. We'll talk about that next week, of course. Right, so, notice in chapter 15, our passage here, chapter 15, verse 13, God's telling Abraham that the people are going to be afflicted for 400 years. God says, it's going to happen. God knows the people are going to end, his people will end up in Egypt for 400 years before returning back to this land. In other words, God is in control here. This doesn't happen by circumstance. This is not God predicting it. We see God in control. And how do the people end up there? One answer is, because God makes it happen. You read the book of Genesis, you read the book of Exodus, you come to any other conclusion that God made this happen, You know, I don't know how you got there. God does it. Sovereign King makes it happen. And at the exact same time, another answer to the question, how did they get there, is, well, One key piece of it is Joseph's brothers acted evil and morally against him, immorally against him, and sold him as a slave. And he ended up in Egypt. And part of the answer is he was faithful. He was faithful in the scenario with Potiphar's wife. That plays a significant part of the story. He was faithful in his interpretation of the dreams and understanding the dreams and relaying the dreams. And and at the very end, when Joseph is speaking to his brothers, a great verse, classic verse, Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And both are true. God meant it for good. He did it. He's sovereign. He's in control. He will accomplish His purposes. He will accomplish His plans and His promises. He will. There's nothing we can do to undo that. And at the exact same time, God uses people to do it. He uses evil people. Like the evil of Joseph's brothers. Like the evil of the Pharaoh in Egypt that we'll see next week. He uses faithful people like Abraham, who is very faithful many times along the way, and faithful people like Joseph, who is faithful along the way. And so, the same God who is the king and in control and going to do what he's going to do is the same God who calls us to be faithful, to obey, to believe, to pray. He tells us to pray. He tells us to share the gospel. He tells us to do missions. He tells us to do evangelism. He's the God who's in control, and He's going to do what He's going to do, and He's also the God who says, I want you to pray and be a part of what I'm going to do. And He never tells us we're supposed to try to figure out this mysterious relationship between these two. There's no place in the Bible that says, try to figure it out. How can God be perfectly sovereign and yet call us to pray? It doesn't say figure it out. It just says pray. Pray. You just be faithful. We're just called to be faithful. Do the things He's told us to do. Things like pray, believe, have faith, be obedient, share the gospel, do missions. And we trust that the King is going to accomplish His plans through us. So we avoid the one extreme that says, well, if He's God and He's going to do what He's going to do, I'm no need for me to do anything. That's not possible. We also avoid the extreme that says, we have to do this because if we don't do it, there's no way the kingdom of God can come in. Oh, the kingdom of God is going to accomplish what the kingdom of God is going to accomplish, with or without us. But the good news is we get to be a part of ushering in the kingdom of God, but it happens through our obedience. We get to be a part of what God's doing. We get to be a part of seeing the promises of God fulfilled. But the way we get to be a part is by doing the things he's told us to do. And this brings us to the fourth and final point I want to make here we can trust God's promises even when they don't seem likely. This is very similar to the first point that we made. God's promises often come in the midst of great conflict. And oftentimes, in the midst of the great conflict, the promise seems very unlikely. And we say, I don't see how this is going to happen. Let me point out some examples. First of all, Abraham and Sarah's disobedience, their unfaithfulness seems like it makes the promise seem unlikely. We've highlighted Abraham's faithfulness and he's an example to follow, but now I'm going to highlight sometimes he's an example to avoid. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, We have two times, two times, Abraham and Sarah enter into a foreign kingdom with a foreign king and Abraham says, she's my sister, therefore you can have her as your wife. And two times, Abraham's wife becomes the wife of someone else, another king. Twice. Now, if that situation remained, and if she remained the wife of another king and not Abraham, why is that a problem? It's a problem because it's a threat to the promise. What's the promise? The promise is for Abraham and Sarah to have a son, Isaac. And the promise comes to him. If she becomes someone else's husband and not Abraham's, that's a major threat to the promise. And so God intervenes miraculously to save him from their situation you also have Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands and involving Hagar you know it's like well he promised us a son we're going to have a son but surely it's not through me it can't be through me so therefore how about the son will come through Hagar and God is no that's not what marriage is marriage is one man one woman together in a covenant relationship forever And God is constantly having to come in and say, You know, you're you're doing it wrong. You're messing up. And Genesis is this proof that that's the way marriage needs to be. And when you start altering the definition of marriage, biblical marriage, the wheels come off. Read Genesis and you'll see the evidence of that. The the promise seems threatened when Abraham and Sarah die. They die. It's like, Wait a minute. I, I thought he was having all these sons, I thought he was supposed to be given this land. Right? And and he dies, and of course the, the promise comes to his son Isaac, and then Isaac dies. And then the promise comes to his son, Jacob, whose name gets changed by God to Israel, which is very important. And then the promise comes goes to one of his twelve sons, Judah. And as you read the book of Genesis, you realize these are not like examples of righteousness to follow a lot of the time. Let me just give one example. Judah the prom- one of the promised, you know, the the, promise, the blessing is coming through you. Judah seeks after a woman he believes to be a prostitute. And it turns out to be his daughter-in-law named Tamar. And they have a son named Perez. And Perez is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Perez is Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. But at the time that you read about Judah going after a prostitute, it turns out to be his daughter-in-law. You're thinking, this is, this is very unlikely that the promise is going to continue. How is God possibly going to work in this and through this? And this is chaos. It's unfaithfulness. It's disobedience. It seems very unlikely. And that's the way the book ends. The book ends, Genesis ends, the very last word of the book is Egypt. God's people are in Egypt. They're not in the land that God promised Abraham they don't have one foot in the land. The only thing they have in the land is a tomb with a bunch of the dead patriarchs in it. That's all that they have of the land that God promised to Abraham. And you know how many descendants Abraham has at the end of Genesis? Seventy. A far cry from the countless, countlessness like the stars. And in one reading, you know, I think we're supposed to say, oh, well, how is this promise possibly going to happen? Because they're not even in the land. They've been removed from the land. There's there's only like 70 people far cry from this great nation that's going to be a a blessing. And it sure does seem like the serpent is in control. It sure does seem like the serpent is going to win. And yet we read Genesis understanding it's the beginning. It's the Genesis. And there's more to come. And we read Genesis with the understanding of the New Testament in mind. And I think it's kind of interesting the way the New Testament begins. Listen to how the New Testament opens up and begins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And the Gospels are the stories of how Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. And he's the blessing that was promised to Abraham. And in him, all the nations get blessed because of what he does, specifically through his death. And even there, you say, well, that seems unlikely. Jesus blesses all the peoples and all the nations through his death. And, you know, of course, on the night of Jesus' death, he shared this meal with his disciples. And the meal was very significant and had great symbolism. As he took the bread and broke it, he said, this bread represents my body. And as he took the cup and drank it, he said, this this cup represents the new covenant. Listen to the language Jesus uses. The cup represents the new covenant. Listen to Luke 22.20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant In my blood. What's Jesus doing? He is enacting a new covenant. And he's acting out a covenant. He's acting it out with the different elements of the bread and the different elements of the the, the cup. Similar to Genesis 15. What's happening in Genesis 15? There's There's a covenant that's being enacted. An Abrahamic covenant being enacted. And it's a covenant that's being acted out. God is passing through the carcasses of animals and He's saying something. He's saying, if I don't fulfill my part of the covenant, I die. I will die before I will fail to fulfill my promise to you, Abraham. And now in the New Testament, we have God with us in the person of Jesus. What's He doing? Enacting a new covenant. And He's not just enacting a new covenant, He's acting out this new covenant. How's He acting it out? Breaking bread pouring a cup and saying, this represents my body, which is about to be broken for you. He, of course, he's about to be sacrificed. He's going to allow himself to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Just like Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac because Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead, Jesus was willing to be sacrificed because he believed God would raise him from the dead. And by the way, they were sacrificed on the same mountain. All right. And so God is in control here. And Jesus promises, I'm coming back. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm coming back for you. There's a promise. And when He came back, He made another promise. It's a promise for us to cling to this morning. Jesus said, I'm coming back again. I'm coming back as the King. And when I come back, I'm going to share this meal with you. And you're going to live for me forever in my kingdom. In the kingdom of my Father. You say, Chris, are you just kind of making this stuff up? No, listen to the words of Jesus on the night when He takes this, this meal with His disciples, Matthew twenty six twenty nine, He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day in the future when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. You hear the promise? I'm going to return for you. You're going to be with Me. I'm going to be with you. We're going to share this meal again in the kingdom of My Father. That's the promise for us this morning. It's a promise that comes in the midst of great conflict. It's a promise that God will accomplish. He has accomplished this new covenant. He will return for us. He will do what He said. It's a promise that has to be appropriated by us through faith. We have to actually hear and believe. And it's a promise that at times seems unlikely. Really? Jesus is really going to come back? We're really going to share this meal with Him one day and sit around a table eating with him at the table of the king? Really? It, it, it seems unlikely, but this is the promise. The king returns. We eat the meal with him in the kingdom of God. And until then, we eat this meal with each other as family, a church family. And as we eat this meal, we're proclaiming something. We're saying Jesus is the king who conquered death. He's the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of Judah, who brings the promise, the blessing, the blessing, to us, that is ours by faith. And we believe one day He returns and we share this meal with Him. And so for these reasons, we ask that only if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are in good standing with a New Testament church, that you take this meal with us. Because we're saying something by taking it. It's not just about eating and drinking. It's a proclamation. We're saying something. We're clinging to Genesis 15.6 that Abraham believed God and God counted that faith to him as righteousness. We're saying we believe that we are counted right before God. We are right with God because of what He's done for us through Jesus Christ and our faith in Him. So for these reasons, we want to give you a few moments to pause, examine, reflect, confess. We do have the elements at the back of the room, so during this time of, of prayer and reflection, you can feel free to go get the cup at the back. And then I'll give us a few moments to do that and then I will lead us in prayer and lead us from there. Let's bow our heads so that we take this meal in a manner that's worthy.